Hey, yo, Internet, don't forget that today's episode of the Combat Jack Show is brought to you by HBO's new series, Insecure. There's so many shows on television that show the modern black woman is strong, confident, flawless, sassy. What you talking about? But Isa and Molly are definitely not winning in that manner. These best friends must deal with their own real-life flaws as they attempt to navigate different worlds and cope with an endless series of uncomfortable everyday experiences, just like we do in our own natural, real-day, real-life lives. Shot in and around South Los Angeles, Insecure incorporates the music of both indie and established artists of color and touches on a variety of social and racial issues that relate to the contemporary black experience. I'm so glad that this is about to happen. She's gone from Awkward Black Girl, which was an awesome web series on YouTube that I watched, to Insecure. Issa Rae has been making us laugh since her early days on YouTube, and we can't wait for you to see how she's upped her game for HBO. HBO is big time. Congratulations, Isa. And if you know anything about Isa Ray, you know she'll have you laughing from beginning to end. Tune in Sunday, October 9th at 10.30 p.m. Eastern and Pacific for the series premiere of Insecure exclusively on HBO. And now let's start the show. Yo, internets, you are listening to the Combat Jack Show, combatjackshow.com. What's up, A-King? How you doing, man? I'm still washed, man. All of this traveling has me washed. Montreal. Montreal was such an amazing trip, man. Shout out to Nation. Shout out to Narcy. Narcy. Shout out to Pop Montreal. Spoonie B. Spoonie B. Shout out to Spoonie B. Barry. Yes, Barry. Bobo. 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 I'm I'm (laughs) glad that you remembered that. Who else do we have to shout out, man? Shout out to Just Blaze, man. Shout out to running Just Blaze. Oh, man. At the Red Bull. I'm so mad that. Our trip ended right when the Red Bull started festival. music festival started because it's popping right now. It's popping, but we had to leave, man. Yeah, it was a little crazy. How's how's your liver? I, I was, <laughs> I'm good, man. I, I was I was moderate. It's, it's, it's the other members of the team that I'm concerned about. Mena, i.e. Jonathan Mena, Mena. Jonathan Mena bottles. Yo, he, his new name is um John Cartagena. John Cartagena, the, the shades like. You know, shout out to Corey Shapiro. Yes. Um, shout out and apologies, man, to Marcus Troy, man, because we at the last moment we had to cancel um, that interview, man. Yeah. Paul 107. Um, who else, man? Nation. Uh, I said Nation. Dirt. dirt. Oh, you had, you had dirt, <laughs> dirt what? Dirt work. Dirt works. He's yep. a producer, right? You hung out with him, right? You're a better man than I am. <laughs> the food was good, man. Yeah. I got a nice massage at Bota Bota, yeah. which is the spa on a boat. In Montreal, I needed that, man. But, you know, in, in between trying to get the relaxation and we, we just got washed. I was looking for that, but I was kept bumping into the wrong things. Oh, you kept bumping into the to, wrong? To, to, yeah. Because you were in Chinatown. Yeah, it was it was something else. Yeah, a little something else. <laughs> you, you didn't want a little, you know, listen, extra, extra listen, pumps? I didn't come over <laughs> to Montreal. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> now, Montreal was dope, man. Salute to everybody. that uh, The fans, yo, the, the, the audience. The that, listeners. It's crazy, the, the, the listeners, right? The listeners. Our supporters. Yes. Surreal, man. I was, I was, I almost had a tear, man. Like they, they really show us love, man. Listen, internets. If you have any type of movement going on, and you care about your craft, and sometimes you question whether or not you're getting enough love, mm-hmm. you know, even though you're pouring your heart and soul into your craft, if you question whether you're you're getting mm-hmm. enough love, man, travel abroad, man. That's a fact. Get your passport stamps. 
and just travel abroad, abroad, man. Get some of that lo- that 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 worldly love, man. It, it does nothing but make you glow. And when you come back, you're ready for more. You know That's what I mean? Right. So I really, really, once again, uh, shout out to Montreal. Uh, country before that was well, city before that was Toronto, London. Um, you know, I was supposed to be going to Paris next week. In between A3C and and, and Revolt. I don't know if I, I don't know if that's happening. I don't know if I could survive that, but you know, Paris, I'm waiting for you. Paris, you know, Paris. Listen, man, I'm so excited to have um, this current guest for so many different reasons. Um, definitely, uh, you know, uh, cut his teeth, you know, in in a world similar to mine, in, in, in that he worked at the Source magazine as a writer, you know, hip hop writer. Um, went on to do big things in Hollywood, and now, now. Now, like, you know, like, like to me, I don't even know what my first love is. I don't know whether my first love is hip hop or comic books. I'm saying this, it's like this, I can't, I I don't know. And, and, and I, and I want to have this discussion with this guy to really figure out like what it is between hip hop and comic books. Mm -hmm. So without further ado, let's welcome to the Combat Jack Show, Cheo Hodari Coker. Thank you. Thank you so much. Did I pronounce your name? Yes, you did. Perfect. Your name is like... It's hard to pronounce, right? A lot of people fuck your name up? Eh, you know, here and there. I mean, I, I get a lot of chill, but, you know, you get used to it. <laughs> right. And, you know, I what I do is I, I don't go out of my way to correct people. It's just that when I introduce myself as chill, then people are like, oh, chill. So it, it all works out. Internet, so you got to see Chao right now. He's literally, he when he walked up into the studio... I was like, yo, fam really is channeling Luke Cage right now. Is that by intention, sir? <laughs> no, well, you know, I, I thought about wearing my, my Luke Cage t shirt, but I was like, nah, that, that's just that's just a little too that's a little too thirsty. What's but, the Luke Cage with with the Well you know, because I we, we got t shirts made up for the crew. Um you know, And one is in your bag for us? Um no, because I don't have because they're all gone. They're I, gone? I, I bail I, I had to tackle somebody to get mine. Right. Because like the thing was was that um because we were filming over Christmas, so we um what we did was for Sweet a, Christmas. For a crew gift. <laughs> we had we had the Luke Cage logo, which no one had seen before. And then on the back of the t shirt it says Sweet Christmas. Wow. You know? ah. <laughs> So now, but now the thing was, was was because we only made probably like maybe 150, 200 right. of those. They're, right. they're, they're they're like collectors' items. Right. But but I'm sure it's you know probably October first I'll start seeing them on on eBay, and then <laughs> then I'll know who's loyal. I'll tell you this, man. It must seem like right now during this run, it must seem to you like every day is Christmas. Um, it's Christmas. You know, it's it's both. It's like it's Christmas, but then at the same time, there are also times when you're Santa Claus. So on one hand, it just it's kind of this gift, but then on the other hand, you also are the one that's organizing the gift. And I, I guess I don't know if Santa Claus and Netflix work together, but they have a similar distribution mm. around the world simultaneously, right. kind of thing. Where you know Christmas, and in this case, is coming early on September thirtieth, because um, the fact that we're opening this show around the world, it just gives us such an opportunity. Not, I mean, yes, Netflix has done that before. But for this kind of show, if you thought about back in the day, this would be the kind of show that would all already be kind of hard to get made. Right. African-American lead superhero show with deep, unadulterated hip-hop. Predominantly black uh, cast. Yes, you know, and then try to do that and then try to make that a, a success here and then try to take it around the world. The approach in this case is really we're going to go everywhere simultaneously. Wow. And so I think the great advantage of that is that, just like you said, Hip hop is alive around the world, um, and so what you'll see, I think, is an enthusiasm from comic book geeks around the world and hip hop geeks around the world. And you know, to go back to your initial question, which you love more, hip hop or you know, being a comic book geek, 
I never wanted to answer that question, and mm. I wanted to create a show that wouldn't that wouldn't have you choose. Right. It could be both. Right. You know, and really, really, what's been crazy is um, we dropped a trailer yesterday, um, which I think we call the Streets trailer. And for me, it was just like watching that trailer. Like I, I forgot, I, I forgot, I, I, I wrote some of this stuff. You, you were, you were I, I, I was watching it like a fan. I was right. like, "Yo, this shit is dope! <laughs> I can't wait to see this show, man." I mean, you got people jumping off of roofs and yeah. shit, and you got Nas playing, and and you got like Mike Coulter throwing people through walls and shit. And I'm just like, "Damn!" I had the fortune <laughs> of, of 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 watching the first episode. Oh, cool. Um, and what did strike me is, you know, Luke Cage. Hero for Hire, Power Man, Superhero. But what's what's shocking to me is in all the press that I've read about this show, no one is no one is titling this a black show mm-hmm. for a show that's predominantly black. What 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 makes that stand out from other shows that are quote unquote predominantly black and are black shows? Well, here's the thing. It's like when you get some of the press, like the first question people ask me usually is, what makes Luke Cage different than you know, you know, Daredevil or Luke or uh, or Jessica Jones, and I, I, I just say straight up, it's it's black. Right. And what I mean by that is that Luke Cage is a black superhero, not a superhero who just happens to be black. Right. So culture is at the center of this, but I would say that, that this show is what I've started calling inclusively black. And what I mean by that is that it's a deep dive into our culture without a translator, much like The Wire was much like, you know, any good record is, whether it's a Tribe Called Quest, whether it's NWA. But it's done in such a way that even if you're from outside the culture, rather than feeling like, oh, this is not for me, the storytelling is compelling enough where you just accept it and you roll with it. So that's why I liken it to movies, because like, I'm a huge movie geek, you know, in addition to, like, that's why I couldn't choose. If you made me choose between hip-hop, you know, hard, movies man. and, and uh, you know comics i right. i don't know if i could really choose honestly um but the thing is for me it's like the movies that i love like um city of god goodfellas you know um even something like amelie because I, I like foreign films amazing too. amazing movie but uh, the perfect first thing like with that it's like amelie is one of those movies that is per if you've never seen a trailer it's great because you just go into it not knowing anything right. as you should and some people are going to be like, oh, it's all these subtitles. This, this movie's not for me. But then you watch for five minutes and then you, it just grabs you. And so that's the thing. It's like you drop into a world. I think what's, the, the difference is as black people that watch movies, we've always had to do that. We've always had to accept that this, whatever we're about to watch is not about us. And so this is really, really one of the first times that this has been the reverse, where people from outside our culture are being like, okay, wait a minute. Like, the, yeah, I, that's one of the, some of the, some of the things that you, uh, I constantly see online is like, wait, why aren't there any, like, white stars? And people would kind of sometimes sarcastically, because this is the era of Trump, and some people just like, like, wait, why, don't, why aren't there any white co-stars? I'm like, when I'm watching The Flash, that's not my first question. Right. So why would that be your first question with, with, you know, with Luke Cage? So my thing is, you know, it's possible to have a black show and be unapologetic. What are we apologizing for? But then What are this, we apologizing for? You know, but at the same time, you know, it can be a celebration of our culture without it being, you know, without denigrating anybody else. And I think that's the thing that people find out. It's like, you know, because you know how hip hop travels. And sometimes people from like, what what what, I, what always kind of tripped me out is like, you like I remember being at Pasa Pasa in, in Jamaica. Three o'clock in the morning, I'm with Jimmy Cliff. We're mm. like in Kingston. 
And I mean, blowing some down. And, and I, I don't smoke. Okay. It's crazy, but but you know, because I'm yeah, I'm, that's I'm, crazy. Because you're with Cliff. I'm basically the only person not you know not smoking, and it's like <laughs> we're, we're like in Tivoli Gardens, and I mean wow. it's it's Dean. I guess the real thing. And I'm looking around. All of a sudden, like I see like these two Japanese kids like filming stuff. I'm like, whoa! But here's the thing. It's like, you know, what I take from that is that. If you're a fan of the culture, there should be no fear. Right. And you'll go to where the source is. And rather than being people looking at them and saying, like, what are you doing here? You know, they say, well, hey, join the party. And I think that's the thing that people find, you know, they kind of get very apprehensive about being around us because we've had the experience of being in very hostile environments. Right. But we are not hostile in that way. We constantly accept people from outside of our culture and, and say, come on in. And I think that's the thing I think, you know, in terms of how this show can really cross over is that there's nowhere to cross. Either, right. you know, you're down or you're not. Either you like the stuff or you don't. We're not going to really pander to make you like it. We're just going to present ourselves as we are. And hopefully you will like you like it because what we've come up with, I think, is really fun. You know, it's amazing the timing of this show. Um, because when you look at the news reports and you're looking at all these, you know, state sanctioned killings by, by police of black men. Um, never has there been reportedly such a high fear of the black man as there is today. Yeah. And then here you have Luke Cage, like the archetype of what everybody fears. Um, when you were, when you were putting this together, man, were like the surrounding political events of what's going on in the States was, did that play a role in, in a narrative? Well, here's the thing. It's like, this is not the kind of thing you want to be pressing about. Right. You know, you don't want to have. I wish we were played out, honestly. I wish that it was if when people see black men getting shot, be oh that that's dated, that, right. that that that's in the past. Right. You know? And as so many people have said before, you know, right before like the the, 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 the age of Eric Garner. Yeah. I mean, and that's really the most painful thing about it is that, you know, it wasn't even trying to invoke a present or a future. It's really in dealing with the past. Because the other question that constantly gets asked is, you know, is Luke Cage the first woke black superhero or is this really a black lives matter, you know, you know, comic book hero? Yeah. Thing about it is, is that all of our art has always been to prove our humanity and the fact that we matter. And so you all of it, right? All of it. So, I mean, if you're talking like day one, right? Yeah. If you're talking about James Baldwin, if you're talking about Zora Neale Hurston, if you're talking about, you know, like even back to what Duke Ellington was doing with, with with some of the more experimental like like librettos, you know, there's always been that undercurrent. Um, you know, James. I mean, really, like even like Chester Himes in terms mm -hmm. of with Coffinet and Gravedigger Jones, even though those are supposed to be like these pot boilers, there's always a certain element that talks about, you know, that search for trying to prove that our lives are as equal and as to anyone else and aren't cheap, right? You know, the, the the literature of Richard Wright. I mean, you know, it's always been there. And so I, they didn't have the technology back then. So there was no hashtag. I think the thing about a hashtag is that because of the way that Twitter works and everyone's connected, all of a sudden it makes people think about it in ways that they haven't really thought about it before. But you could really say that Black Lives Matter has been a continuum really always for the, the 20th and 21st centuries. So I don't try to put that kind of pressure on the show. I'm just trying to basically tell the best superhero story that I can tell. But at the same time, culture is another superpower. 
because when you match the energy of Luke Cage with Wu-Tang, then you have something that you haven't seen before. I mean, hey, it's, it's peanut butter and chocolate. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily, you know, make sense. Right. But then, boom, it's like the taste, like it's like the commercial. It's like, like you know, it's something you haven't had before, you know, in this case. And so that was the thing where I, I don't really think I knew the full power of the show until um, Guillermo Navarro had just edited episode three with Tersha Hackshaw, who um, was our editor for that episode. She's a brilliant, brilliant editor. Initially, when Matt Owens wrote the script for three, the song that we had in there was Mystery of Chess Boxing because mm. it was supposed to be him kind of going, you know, putting the headphones on and fighting his way through the projects. And it was supposed to be, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, raw, give it to you. We know that, that kind of, that, that, that energy, right. right? But it didn't quite choreograph right because it isn't like we had playback when we were shooting it. And so Tirsa said, you know, Guillermo and I tried something. We want to show it to you. And... As soon as she put on Shaolin Shadow Boxing, I, and I said, is she really going to bring the ruckus? And as soon as bring the ruckus dropped, I, I lost my mind. Was that a spoiler, sir? Well, it's, Did you, are you up here spoiling the show, man? It, it's a semi-spoiler <laughs> because, you know, we when we put out the trailer, right. we used Shimmy Shimmy Ah, but we did that to kind of protect Bring the Ruckus. And it's gotten out in little bits here and there where, like, um, if you watch one of the street level heroes, like the first one that we did with Method Man and Adrian Young and Ali, like you see me showing him on an iPad the sequence, and then he's talking about Bring the Ruckus, and then you know it's starting to leak out a little bit, but only because we're on the eve of the show where we finally let it out. But it's okay because when you actually see that sequence to that song, it makes you forget about Shimmy Shimmy Yaw. And there there are going to be people that, because they saw it first in that mini teaser with Shimmy Shimmy Yaw, they're going to always associate with that song. But seeing it would bring the ruckus. I mean, the, when you see the full sequence, it, it fits so perfectly. Um, it's one of those things where you're just like, I just cannot believe that I've waited this long to do this. And, you know, people have talked to me, oh, my God, the, 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 you know, this is incredible. And, and I'm like, it's not that I'm incredible or that this was the, I'm the first person to have this idea. I'm lucky enough to be in a position where we have a show where you can actually do it. And so it seems as if basically all the groundwork that was laid by every show that came before us is now for this moment where we can really finally mirror, you know, this boisterous, unadulterated hip hop with the joy of watching a black man with superpowers. And so like you have, the perfect music to match the visuals, you know? Um, And that's really the thing, like whether it's using, you know, Wu-Tang stuff or, you know, a lot of the stuff that both Adrian and Ali came up with just for the show. I mean, that's really the thing I'm the most excited about. I mean, yes, this is a drama. Yes, this is also, you know, deep into Marvel. But for me, I mean, this is basically a, you know, a hip hop version of Lemonade. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's basically like it's really just an extended 13 hour music right, video, right. as far as I'm concerned. You know, but in in a fun way, right? And and timing is everything, man. Especially when you look at the um the history of the actual Luke Cage character himself. You know, him being a child of a character, a, a product of black exploitation. Yeah, like him being written exclusively by white by white writers back in the day, and you know the language being stunted. And then over the past, I would say, 15 years. You know, Marvel really taking care to really develop 
that character from the character character caricature that it was before. Like mm-hmm. it's just it's just amazing. I never thought when I first started reading Luke Cage that he'd be a character with so much depth because he wasn't initially. Well, I mean, you know, it's like what I liken it to is, um, although I don't want to sound crazy and grandiose because I, I can't compare myself to Francis Ford Coppola. Cause right. I'm, the Godfather to me is the most important. It's my favorite movie of all time. The Godfather? Yeah. Mine is Apocalypse Now. Okay. See, but but that, that's the thing that Coppola does. The thing was, was that back in the day when he was a young writer-director, when um, Peter Bart and, um, you know, Robert Evans, you know, who at the time were like the heads of Paramount, mm-hmm. they were like, wait a minute, we have this best-selling book, The Godfather, that Mario Puzo wrote. We're doing various adaptations of it, but something's not quite right. And so when they figured, wait a minute, if we can find a, an Italian-American director, maybe that writer-director will bring a different perspective to this material. The nuance. And he'll be able to pull stuff out. Right. And that's really what Coppola did with Puzo, not only in the screenplay, but also just the little stuff, whether it's, you know, his father, like, doing all the music. So the wedding music is very specific to a culture. The music in Sicily is very specific to the culture. You know, even the, the moments when the, when they're throwing what Coppola calls the um, football sandwich. Hey, God would go, hey, you stupid jerk. You know, you know, the, the, <laughs> you know that that whole thing. And, right. And just all that, all those little, you know, think of another gangster movie that also gives you a perfectly feasible spaghetti recipe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, and that's the thing, you know, a little bit of wine. That's my trick, you know, you know, it, but that, that, that's the whole thing is like, I mean, it really, when you can do that, you come up with something that, even though it's fictional, has a slice of real life in it. And that's really the thing that's interesting in terms of our perspective on Harlem and everything else that we do in the show is that rather than just say Harlem, we want to give you bits of it so that people from Harlem see it and be like, okay, not only are they talking Harlem, yo, they're right in front of Mount Olivet. Right. Or, you know, um, when Dapper Dan shows up in, in episode 105, you're like, whoa. <laughs> What's Dab doing in this? Fucking spoilers, this guy. <laughs> this, guy this guy with the fucking spoilers. <laughs> well, no, um, see, the advantage you have right. is that... No, I love it, man. You know well, I love oh, it. Oh, no, but what I'm saying is like, so when is this coming out? This is coming out. We're going to drop this today. Today. Oh, man, see. All right, so it won't be too much of a spoiler for you because, you know, since you are in media, since you are worldwide, you have exclusive access to the first seven episodes. Yes. Thank so, you so much, Netflix. Anytime. Thank you so much, Netflix. <laughs> But what everyone else will discover on um, on Friday is that, you know, even though this is a cliche from the 90s, yo, we keep it real. Yeah. Like, mm. we, we really have, as much as we can, you know, the perfect marriage, I think, of the aesthetic of Harlem, Harlem's history, in addition to it really being a fully geeked out Marvel universe. Because don't get it twisted. I mean, like, we, you know, first and foremost, like, I'm a geek. Yes. You know, and so my whole thing was that it really had to be work on both levels. Was there any push from Marvel in terms of how real you wanted to keep it? I was surprisingly no. And Not I at mean, all. What I mean by that, there was no no pushback. Right. I mean, really, the thing that's really great about working with Marvel and Netflix is that each of us as showrunners has been allowed to lean in as deep a direction as we needed to lean for to capture a reality for, for each character. So I think, you know, in terms of Drew Goddard and Stephen DeKnight's vision of Daredevil, they really wanted to go for a darkly violent, you know, kind of thriller that would kind of remind you of like Taxi Driver and, 
those really gritty movies from the seventies. But, that, but but that's still all the blueprint that Frank Miller lit. lit. Exactly. Yeah. So so they really they really wanted to bring the Frank Miller version right. of Daredevil to, fully to life. You know, I think in terms of Melissa, I can't speak for her, but just from watching the show, you know, she kind of wanted to do like a very classic noir tale and a mistelling, a comic book story. And so, so with the voiceover and so when you watch those elements of it, it's like watching, you know, very classic noir stuff. For us, it's kind of a mixture of black exploitation with a, what I call a hip hop Western. So it's like you've got all these, it's, it's part Shaft, part Unforgiven. You know, with a hip hop soundtrack, but also beyond that, I mean, we got Nina Simone, we've got John Lee Hooker, we've got Mary Jackson, we've got Donald Byrd. I mean, it's it's almost like like listening to um, Frankie Crocker back in the day, right? Where you just it's all kind of juxtaposed, so what and timeless. I'm, yes. So what I'm saying is that they never had any bumps about leaning deeply into the culture. Um, the only bumps you would get occasionally would be like, okay, how does this intersect with these other characters? Because we knew, thank God it's no longer a secret, so I can talk about it, the Defenders. The Defenders. So it's kind of what I call the Beatles in reverse. I mean, everybody gets a solo record, and then you come together for the right. supergroup. Right. And so each record gets to kind of be quirky and weird. So what I would say, it's like, okay, our record, I mean. It's like we, the anti-Wu-Tang. Yeah. So 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 basically, like, okay, if, if Luke Cage... I don't, what would you call Luke Cage? Would, would you want to call it Cuban links? Would you want to call it bulletproof wallets? Would you want to call it supreme clientele? Okay, so this we can kind of be the, the you know the supreme clientele. Yes, I was of, about of, to say of, supreme clientele of, of this universe. Right. At the same time, if Daredevil is you know um, I don't know, it could be cold, it could be liquid swords. You know, um, Jessica Jones. I would say it's liquid swords. Yeah, Jessica Jones could be um, okay. Jessica Jones could be Cuban links. And then the fourth record, or the Defenders, is Enter the Thirty Six Chambers. Right, right, right. So, but we just kind of did it backwards. But say, for example, if you like one of these young kids that doesn't remember these records coming out during the years that came out, no matter what Wu Tang record you discover first, one of the affiliates or one of the major records, it doesn't take away your enjoyment of hearing Thirty Six Chambers right. or anything else. Right, right. In, in fact, it's a different universe. And what's crazy is that we've always had that kind of diversity in terms of music. So if you're Wu-Tang, there's a deep Wu-Tang universe. If you're an outcast, the whole Dungeon family, Atlanta sound goes on all these different directions. If you're into the Oakland sound, you got both hieroglyphics and two shorts. Mm-hmm. So that's two different kinds mm-hmm. of Oakland culture. But you never had that kind of diversity in, in, in television. But now you do. Now you do. And so it's like we can kind of have this kind of retro 90s vibe for our, for our show. But then at the same time, you have something like Donald Glover's Atlanta, which is... Which I still haven't seen. Oh, my God. I yo, still yo, haven't seen that, man. You know, I don't want to get in too much trouble promoting another show while doing this show. Right, right. <laughs> but but that, that show was dope. Yeah. I got to see it, man. You know, it's but that's the thing that's really great is the fact that you can kind of go in all these different directions and they don't cancel each other out the same way that the music, hip-hop-wise, never cancel each other out because you could really be fans of all of it. Yeah. You know? You know, it's funny. I never read Alias, but I'm surprised at how much I enjoy it. Jessica Jones, like I really enjoy, and I think part of it was the storytelling and the tone and and the and the, 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 the the pulp fiction aspect to it. Yeah, but it was also the visual introduction of Luke Cage. I mean, yeah. the, the shit was perfect. Yeah, well, I mean, well, that, that's the thing. I mean, and that, and that was what was great. I mean, like you, I remember reading Alias the comic, and it's just how like, was? I mean, people keep telling me I still need to read that. Oh, it's well, I mean, well, that's the thing that's crazy is because you got you have this this character who is a reluctant superhero yes. who drinks a lot. She goes to a bar. The bar is owned by Luke Cage. You know, they kind of talk, and then you know, 
five pages later, boning. Boom. And then he like, this is a comic book? And then, <laughs> and then she's, you know, solving a case and is kind of having her issues. But what's great about watching the translation into the television show is that it doesn't shy away from any of her foibles at right. all. And so I think that's really what is different about Marvel superheroes on Netflix as opposed to any other kind of interpretation is that rather than hide the human flaws and only focusing on the super, Marvel Netflix focuses on the human aspects as much as the super. Which is what Marvel has always done. Yeah. Like from the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. To, like, you know, they've always fo- focused on, 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 on the hero's shortcomings yeah. as part of their strength. Well, I mean, and, and I think that's really what makes television, you know, the perfect medium to right. really kind of explore this kind of storytelling. Because you could do a two-hour version of Luke Cage. But it's not as satisfying as doing 13 hours because then you can really spend time on what makes him tick. You also get the opportunity, not too many spoilers, to kind of get into what um, makes a character like um, Cottonmouth tick as well. And we had such an incredible cast, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, to write stuff for not only Mike Coulter, who's I think the the best casting, you know, the since, best since, since the best since um Sean Connery was cast as Bond. Right. I mean, I, I think that this. I think like Michael, like you physically, you just look and that, that's Luke Cage. But see, but that's the thing. I mean, you, there are a lot of brothers out there that physically can play Luke Cage, right. but to have the other turn, the sensitivity and the nuance that he brings to it, I mean, it's like, I mean, he's he's part Denzel, part Billy D. I mean, you you watch Mike Coulter go through this through this whole show, and you're just like, man. And then at the same time, you've got Simone Misik, who I think is is really going to surprise people as Misty Knight. She's beautiful, by the yeah. way. Oh my god, naturally, yeah, beautiful, yeah. She really is, um, you know, but at the same time has a strength. I mean, she's, you know, she's gorgeous. I mean, you know what she reminds me? She, she's like Pam Greer. Yeah. I mean, she's she's like like the Who's per- the one that played uh, Coffee? Pam Greer. TV. Well, wait, who, what, get, get Christy, what was this TV show? Get Christy Love. Who played that. Get Christy Love? She reminds me of her. I'll, although, um. Because, because Pam yeah. Greer was like naturally like black, black Wonder Woman. Yeah. And now, she's uh, a little bit more subtle. Definitely, yeah, um, and, and and of course, like like in any any blaspertation credibility, I just had a shot the fact that off the top of my head, I can't I can't name you who, who Christy Love was. Can, can you find that out, Kim? Sure. Please, thank you. Because the thing was, I mean, here's a, you know that's the thing. Like I'm, I was born in '72, so my memories of of like blaspertation were like Shaft, Coffee, Foxy Brown, right, and then my uncle Leon. He, he used to read Players, so <laughs> I remember I remember I remember sneaking and seeing, seeing Pam Greer in that too. But then at the same time, it's Jane like, Kennedy. Yeah. Oh my God. Jane yeah, Jane, yeah. Jane Kennedy. I remember, I remember she was on CBS. She was bad. Man. Yeah. Always. Um, oh yeah. But of course, you know, um, penitentiary. Leon Le- ruined Le- it for Le- all yeah, of us. Leon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all those movies. I mean, that, that's the thing. Um, Teresa Graves. Teresa Graves. Yeah. You know, let's get a little geekish right now. Okay. Um, I've read that you said that uh, the two main storylines from comics that inspired you with regard to your vision with Luke Cage. Is X Men's uh, that one off God Love Man Kills mm-hmm. and Frank Miller's seminal uh, Wolverine miniseries? Yeah. How so? Well, see, what I loved about the Wolverine miniseries, Wolverine Chris Claremont miniseries, is until did day, you buy the initial run? Yeah. Were you able to? So you well, lived through that. No, what happened was I became a real comic book fan. I want to say in 1983, 84. Okay. Um, I was uh, yeah. Which I, was the time to become a comic book fan? Yeah. Because I, I was 11 years old, right. and um, I was, I think, in sixth grade. And um, one of my friends, 
this is a Mansfield Middle School, this kid named Austin Orth. He was a comic book collector, and um, he turned me on to X-Men. I think the first X-Men I read was, was probably 173, 174. Was this post-Phoenix? Uh, post, uh, it, it, was, it was post-Phoenix. It's right around the introduction of Madeline Pryor. Okay. It went, when at the time that you know Scott is all in love because he, he really thinks that Jean Grey reincarnated. Was Byrne still on the book or no? Um, I can't remember if Byrne was on the book or okay. not. But but I went back, of course, and read Dark Phoenix and and read the Byrne run. And you know, did and, you get to read the Cockrum? Yeah. Okay. I mean, but but the the, the, the Cockrum stuff was that that was like giant size X Men. Giant size X Men. Ninety five. You know, you know what's funny was um, this is a funny story about Austin. He had giant size X Men to whatever X Men. Was it was up to I think it was one seventy four one seventy five. He was going to sell me the entire run for thirty bucks, and my mother would not give me the money. She said, oh. she said thirty dollars was comp. No, <laughs> it's the only thing other than her giving away my Star Wars toys right. that we that we beef about right. to this day. Right, <laughs> but that was the thing was he introduced me to these comics. Okay, so I had the first four or five issues of Groove the Wanderer, and I traded those to him for those first four Wolverines. Which I think was probably a very uneven trade. Very uneven. And we're talking about a character from Mad Magazine. Yeah. And Wolverine. Shit. But that was the thing was reading those comics. I mean, like from the very beginning, from the first one where you see him like scaling, like you know, he's in the Rocky somewhere and he's mm-hmm. scaling and he goes against the grizzly bear and he and he hunts down the guy that you know that was not that basically made the bear, you know, to poison the bear so he killed people. So right. he, he's lamenting having to have kill this bear and then of course he has to go to japan and then he goes to japan and then you know at this point he meets Mariko's father who just kicks his ass with a wooden sword yes he's, he you know hits the, him in the throat i can't breathe and it's it is the whole thing where like you know you're not even worthy of steel i'm right. gonna i'm gonna beat you to death with a wooden sword it was just like, like you're an yeah. animal that was that was that was the theme right he, yeah. wolverine got beat like an animal yeah and then you know and then of course he's got yukio and they got this whole kind of weird relationship and then I mean, it's kind of like, it's basically a spy story. And then at the same time, you got the hand. I mean. Ninja. It's just like, I just wish, you know, if they ever really adapted Wolverine. It's, although I think Hugh Jackman is perfect as Wolverine. Perfect, perfect I, Wolverine, but I think it might be too late, no? Yeah, I, I just I just wish that they would tell that story. Just that story. Right. Just the, the story of that miniseries. That's really what every Wolverine story should but be. But Marvel would, would have to control it. Actually, absolutely. I mean, they have to get it back from Fox. Right. But the thing is, is that that gets me about that whole thing was it just showed me the possibilities of what you could do with a sustained storyline and, and how many deep themes there were, because you had deep themes about honor and different elements of Japanese culture. In addition to, you know, this Gaijin who's basically a foreigner who really is in love with this woman who's not from his culture. And and it's basically a story about assimilation versus non-assimilation versus honor versus, redemption redemption and also you know humanity in terms of whether or not he really you know wolverine's whole thing is i'm not a dog right you know i'm not the dog you think i am so if you think about that and you think about those themes resonate and you can accomplish all that within a comic book and so that's so that, that that's really kind of an influence i mean i would say john burns um first 12 issues of alpha flight Mm. We're also an influence because one of our twists, like that one, I mean, you know, of, of course, if you kind of, if you remember the, those first 13 mm-hmm. issues in, in terms of the whole cliffhanger with, with James McDonald Hudson, mm-hmm. we also have some interesting things okay. that, we, that we do cliffhanger-wise. Right. 
that are just like I remember just reading that comic like I can't believe they did that somebody dies exactly but the way that, that it happens you just like I can't believe that this happened then this shit's short circuit or some shit like yeah. that yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it was right in front of his wife and then he's just like you know yeah. it was like whoa like they, they didn't just do that did they like, they, they, they did it or, or another one that, that I didn't talk about that's also another influence is um, Craven's Last Hunt I don't know if you remember that mm, one yes where um, Craven the Hunter, you know, is really the first time anyone killed Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. So he kills Spider-Man and then... Who he's been trying to kill since the fucking 60s. And he gets him. Yeah. And then for two months, like, you're like, two or three months, you're like, wait a minute, David, he's really dead. Yeah. Because the next issue, you think, oh, well, you know, Spider-Man's... No, Spider-Man's dead. And Craven is <laughs> dressed up like Spider-Man, going all over the city, being Spider-Man. And you're like, he's really dead. And then it wasn't until, like, the third or fourth, you know, issue, I think, you know, that, like, okay... He's buried alive. I mean, wait a minute, but like, still, it was just like I just remember what it was like to be a comic book reader, and right. you you wait all those months. And you're like, I can't believe they actually did it, and just kind of the fear, and just kind of like the fascination, and the fact that a comic book can really make you feel like that. And so all these things kind of come in the background. You're telling you know a different story with Luke Cage, but you still want to have that geeky fascination of being inside of a world and the rules of those worlds of this world and just showing that you can be have just as much drama within this as anything else, you know, God love man kills. Well, that's probably the most depressing. Oh, it's awful. X-Men book of all time. Yeah. How did this play an influence? Well, think about the beginning of that. It's like you have two young, you know, black mutants and they're like, they're like eight or 10 years old. And they're being hunted, right? And they're being hunted and they, and they get murdered. And, and this is state sanctioned, or is this like just well, well, because a vigilante? What, because, I, forget, I forget. Well, what happens is that Magneto, you know, after these these young, these young mutants are killed, Magneto shows up, and the pain that he has for these kids comes from the fact that they're mutants and the fact that he's a mutant, and also, of course, the thing that's interesting about Magneto is that he's a Holocaust survivor, and so that's so brilliant about that character. And so, when you look at this whole thing, you basically have. You know, um, to a certain extent, a retelling of the conflict between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, with Martin Luther King representing Charles Xavier Mm -hmm. and the why can't we all get along? And we want mutants to basically integrate with society and prove that, you know, homo superior is no different than homo sapien. It's just a way of powers. And whereas, you know... Magneto's whole thing, having survived the Holocaust, is like if we're going to be persecuted and hunted, and we are homo superior, and we are the next stage. Why are we running from anybody? Right. And the, and there being that kind of balance, and you and you're looking at this comic book, and you're like, how can a comic book, how can a graphic novel go so deep into all these different things? But Even then, the the political background behind that, yeah. that book. I mean, but and the, and, the, and the craziest thing about it, of course, is you know the main character who's. Um, Who's kind of running on an anti, you know, run, a politician? Or I can't remember the book if he was a politician or if he was a preacher. I think he was a. It's kind of a mixture. Yeah, mixture. He was kind of like a preacher, preacher with political ties. Yeah. Very reminiscent of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the thing that was interesting is the fact that you could have a comic that's so prescient about just human nature and how people deal with with this kind of stuff. And. Um, I just remember reading it just being like just blown away and, and it still resonates because it just proves that you really can go there in the comic book and then in terms in a comic book series that you can go deep and you can and you can talk about a, a lot of themes but that you're not being against comics you're actually 
for the first time fulfilling the full breadth of what a comic book vision is. Because sometimes you have people that have done these adaptations that basically say, well, we're not a comic book and we're and we're using this as a jump off. It's almost as if they're like ashamed of the fact right. that it's a com- high art medium. Yeah. But my, my whole thing is that we embrace that. We embrace the comic book of, you know, the marvel of it. We embrace the black exploitation of it. You know, rather than not using Sweet Christmas and seeing that as as this kind of thing that's played out, you know, we I'm use... glad that he said it though. He had an opportunity yeah. to say it in uh, in Jessica Jones. Yeah, but we also say it. Um, you know, we we use it at times in, in our show too. Right, and and it feels it 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 doesn't feel dated when right. it does it. I mean, <laughs> it might just be that you know that that Mike Coulter is that cool that, right. he, that he can say he Sweet can say, Christmas right. and it sounds Sweet like Sweet Christmas something. You know, who, who knows if people will start saying it again? I beg you for this one. You got to give me this one spoiler though. No. Yeah, do we get the yellow silk shirt? Uh well, let's and the chain the the chain belt. Let's say that yes, that means if yes. You that means yes. Are a careful viewer. <laughs> <laughs> of the show, there might be a scene that might fulfill hmm. that right. wish of yours, but you have to look very closely and carefully because so it's if an you're Easter not egg. looking, it's an Easter egg. If you're not looking, you, right. you, you'll okay. miss it. But it's there. I love the clip. I haven't seen the episode. I don't know what episode it is, but I love the clip uh, related to his uh, origin when he comes out of that tank. Yeah, with the tiara and the and the, and the bands, man. Like like fan bros went crazy over that, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was a thing, um, you know, Charles Murray, who wrote that episode, um, what was so great about, I mean, other than just Charles Murray, just the man, yeah. but what was great about what Charles did was that he managed to marry form with function. So we were able to incorporate that from the old comics, but we did it in a way that actually makes sense to, you know, the evolution of Luke Cage and his powers. And so that that's really kind of one of the most important things is form and function. Hey, yo, Internets, I'm really excited about this. This week's episode of the Combat Jack Show is brought to you by HBO's new original series, Insecure. It's a new comedy series created and starring Issa Rae, and it debuts on October 9th exclusively on HBO. Why I love this is because I used to be a fan of, like, the online series, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. Like, you know, like, black girls aren't supposed to be awkward. Well, they are awkward just as black men, and this show really captures it. Modern-day black women are usually portrayed as strong, confident, flawless, sassy, but Issa and Molly are definitely not winning. Like, these best friends must deal with their own real-life flaws and insecurities as they attempt to navigate different worlds and cope with an endless series of uncomfortable, everyday experiences. Does that sound... Does that, does, does, does that, does that remind you of anybody, Internets? Created and executive produced by Issa Rae, the show is also executive produced by Prentice Penn, Melina Matsukis. Michael Rottenberg, David Becky, and Jonathan Berry. Larry Wilmore serves as a consultant. The comedy series Insecure launches its eight-episode season Sunday, October 9th at 10.30 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, exclusively on HBO. Ray stars as Isa, and Yvonne Orji stars as Molly on the show, which explores the black female experience in an uncliched and authentic way. Shot in and around South Los Angeles, Insecure incorporates the music of both indie and established artists of color and touches on a variety of social and radical issues that relate to the contemporary black experience. Issa Rae's web content has garnered over 25 million views and over 200,000 subscribers on YouTube. In addition to making the Forbes 30 Under 30 list twice and winning the 2012 Shorty Award for Best Web Show for her hit series, Awkward Black Girl, she has produced web content for Pharrell Williams, 
Tracy Edmonds, and numerous other notable Hollywood notables. Ray became a New York Times bestselling author in 2015 with her hit book, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. You do not, internets, if you listen to the Combat Jack show, you do not want to miss out on this show. From the music to the comedy to the acting, there's nothing like this on television right now. And it's exactly what we need. Insecure is going down in history. Take my word for it, internets. It's going down in history as one of the best comedies in 2016. So tune in Sunday, October 9th at 10.30 p.m. Eastern and Pacific for the series premiere of Insecure exclusively on HBO. Yeah. Let's talk about this this um, this deep, intimate relationship between hip-hop and comic books. Yeah. You know, it wasn't until, like, I think it wasn't until, like, maybe about 15 years ago that I really, like, it it hit me like, oh, shit, like, hip-hop is, like, real-life comic books. Like, looking back, back at Public Enemy, mm-hmm. Public Enemy, to me, was, like, the living embodiment at the time of the X-Men. Yeah. You know, but if, if you're talking to somebody that, that, that doesn't know both worlds, they'll be like, what the hell are you talking about? Well, you know, you know what it is, I think, with hip-hop is that hip-hop is one of the few art forms where, like, its rappers have alter egos. Yes, and, and so, superpowers, and, and their own superpowers, yes. and, which is really their rhyme style yeah. or their perspective on 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 everything or their narrative. So, perfect example was um, one of the last times I talked with Biggie. Um, he would talk to me like I was asking him about his childhood, and he talked about how, you know, at home at home he was Chrissy Poo because his mother was a very you know distinct Jamaican Jehovah's Witness, and he was very sheltered. And then um, on the streets, he was Big Chris. And so he would talk about how he told me this basically the story where his mom and we actually, you know, when, when, and, and when I when I co-wrote Notorious, the movie, I, I actually put this the scene in the movie. Um, his mom would leave and he would, you know, he basically would be wearing whatever clothes that she had bought him. She'd leave and go and go to work and then he'd go up on the roof. And then and then like, you know, basically any of the kicks that he had, any of like you know, whether he was wearing polo or whatever else that he got from when he was selling, that's when he would put that stuff on. It was almost like him changing his costume. Right. So then when he's on the street, he was basically Big Chris. And the thing that I thought of immediately when he told me that story, I said, okay, so basically at home you're Peter Parker and on the street you're Spider-Man. Right. And the same way that Aunt May cannot believe that, you know, Spider-Man is her, you know, her is, beloved nephew. is her nephew and is kind of how Miss Wallace couldn't really accept that you know, Big and Christy Pooh were the same person. Right. So when she runs across his drugs and throws them out, and then he, you know, he he told me the story of having to tell his mom that yes, the things they've been saying is true. I, you know, I, I sell drugs. You know, it made me like when I was you know ultimately after he passed and I and I and I wrote the book and and then ultimately when I was adapting you know the book into the screenplay that became notorious that also Reggie Rock Bythewood also um, contributed to. I thought about the fact that this is really a story about Peter Parker trying to prevent his aunt from finding out he's Spider-Man and how he's got these two alter egos. And ultimately, it isn't until Big realizes that he can be both Christopher Wallace and the Notorious B.I.G. And right when he figures out that he can be both, which actually in real life was really the last time I had talked to him, he really finally figured out how to be both. That's when he gets killed. Right. And because it's really a story about somebody who's two different people and then really at the point when he finally realizes that you can be both becoming you know becoming in tune with your full humanity yeah and so i think on that level in terms of hip-hop and 
comic books always being a metaphor. You've got that thing with the split alter egos. But then you have people that are just pure fans, like like Method Man. Like I've I've known Meth since '93, and he's always been a huge comic book fan. Right. I mean, like to this day. I mean, he's probably like in every Wednesday, like what new books are out? He's gonna read them. You know, um, a lot of people have always been influenced by it in the background, and so I think what's been great is that you can now combine both. Like, and you really see it now. Off, like one of the great things that they've done at Marvel Comics themselves is. Are those um, all those covers that that have the come variant out. covers? Yeah, the variant covers are incredible. Like the, I'm uh, mad at Marvel. Yeah. for the variant covers, and I'll tell you why. Why? About six years ago, online and in the on the internets, the variant covers were a rarity. You know, I guess they were done independently by independent artists, and now that they're done by Marvel, it's almost like oh man, like <laughs> the variant covers are like a sellout of that marriage between hip hop. And comic books, but at the some at the same time, it's like what I love is the fact that if, that if you get the inside joke, it's right. great. So like Black you, Panther putting on his mask, like Jay Z putting on his fitted, exactly is amazing. That one is amazing. Well, that one I like. I, I like the the um, old man Logan one that looks like Ice Cube's death certificate cover, right? Or the um, that's a good one. The uh, Mob Deep, which is like the Power Man and Iron Fist. Yes, variant. yes, yes. That's a good one. Or, uh, I mean, there's just so many of them. But it's like, if you get the joke, I mean, it's it's really, it have, works on so many levels. Have you seen this, this this mashup of uh, Bruce Wayne or, or, or Batman and Iron Man in the, in, the, in, the, in the Lamborghini, like Jay-Z and Kanye in the Otis video? Oh, that's and they're dope. And they're, like, <laughs> they're, like, they're having a blast. Oh, that's dope. <laughs> you got to see that one, man. Yeah. But I, but that's the thing. It's like I, I think two things are missing from hip hop right, right now is just the pure unadulterated fun of hip hop. Right. Like when, cause like when you mentioned the oldest video, that I, I love that video because it's really the first time you Jay Z unguarded. Yeah, it's the first time you ever see Jay Z have fun in a video. Right. I mean, like for real. I mean, right. yeah, of course, Big Pump he had fun in that, but right. like this is like different. It's just the pure joy of like we're rich and we're rhyming. Like here it is. You know, and I think the other thing that's missing from, from hip hop is that people have forgotten about, you know, the medium's power to kind of educate, entertain, and illuminate. You know, because that's really kind of the thing was. I mean, it was like hip hop from from our era. You know, it didn't just send you the strip club. I mean, it sent you to the library sometimes. Because I remember when sent I sent you to the library a lot of times. When I first was listening to Chuck D, when I first was, was listening to Karis, I was like, who, who the hell is Joanne Chesamont? And that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, it made you look it up. I mean, it's. And Let me investigate this Bible a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the cool things about, like, when you get to different episodes of Luke Cage, that we have those moments where people, I know people haven't, you know, might not have heard of. You know, this might be their first introduction into even hearing about Donald Goins. Right. Because we have a scene in the barbershop where um, Luke and Pop are arguing about, you know, whether or not Kenyatta is a better black superhero than um, Easy Rollins. Mm-hmm. And they kind of start talking about stuff that I know people, if people haven't read these books, I mean, who knows if that's going to spark. The, uh, Ralph Carlson's Invisible Man. You know what I'm saying? In the first episode. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing was I, I wanted to prove that, like, you could... Like we're very literary. Like you know, there there have always there's always some cat that you know, even if he's a hard rock. There's also a bookworm. Yes, and you've never really seen the depiction of both simultaneously on television. 
Unfortunately, it's always been like you either one or the other. Right. Or you, you're always like Flash Thompson beating up Spider-Man. Right. I mean, or actually beating up Peter pa- Parker. Peter Parker. As opposed to saying, you know, what if Flash could also, you know, was also like <laughs> quietly. Like a genius, like, like just like an intellectual. Exactly. And right. so in this case, you can really do both. I read that you initially wanted to do uh, Heroes for Hire. Well, it wasn't that I wanted to do Heroes for Hire. It was that when you think of Luke Cage, you think of, you know, like all the superhero stuff is great, but how am I getting paid for this? Right. And when I had the initial conversation with um, with Jeff Loeb and Kareem Zreich and, um, you know, Dan Buckley and Joe Quesada, their whole thing was that they wanted to do a slow burn of the character. They really wanted the first season to be about the evolution of a hero. And then if you got past that, then you could see where where else that could go. So it was about kind of subverting things long enough to give Luke his own arc so that if you were going to bring Luke with other characters like the Defenders or beyond. Or Danny Rand, Iron you, Fist. Yeah, somewhere to go. Right. And so I think in the end, th- that approach, I think, was the best approach. Um, but what's cool is that if people are even thinking about that, you know, now is cool right. as well. Of course. You know, are we getting an Iron Fist? Is, uh... Yes, we we are getting oh an Iron Fist. God. Like, like I, I, I oh no. my god! See that that to me is kind of the coolest thing about this whole process. Shut a fan, bro. Nut. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, I think for me the craziest thing about this whole thing is that I've had to have all these secrets about these characters, right. like bottled up, and not being able to talk about any of it. So it's cool to be able to talk about finally about Luke Cage. Um. I don't know enough about what's going going on with Iron Fist just to know that what little I've seen is really cool. And then the fact that there's going to be the Defenders is, you know, which I have seen a little bit of just during the script-wise, that's going to be a really good one too. Yo, fam, the trailer for the Doc Strange movie. Yeah. Like, you got to understand, like, I don't I don't think, Doc Strange is like a special character. He's not the, the, the uh, a superhero for everyone's taste. But I just remember being so caught up in like the Steve Ditko, like it's so so otherworldly version of like the initial yeah. definitive version of 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 Doctor Strange with the dots on his orange gloves and the whole nine. And when I saw it, like how my question is, how is Marvel able to win? They have a hundred percent win rate right now. Yeah, with regard to their adaptations, I'm not. I haven't seen Agents of Shield. I, I can't really watch basic like network television, mm-hmm. but. Everything else is a hundred percent. How are they able to do this, man? Like um, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's you know Ant Man. Like I bet Cat's money that Ant Man was gonna be hot because yeah. I remember the Bob Layton Ant Man from back in the days. Well, you know what it is. It's like Marvel is on a run the same way. It's almost like, like the Lakers. Not I wouldn't even say Lakers. You know, it's 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 like Def Jam from Def Jam from '86 to like the mid '90s. Like, it didn't even matter. If it was on Def Jam, you were going to buy it. I mean, yes. like, I, I remember buying, the, you know, I remember I was in the record store. This is how old I, you know, how we, when I'm dating myself. <laughs> and I never heard of original concept, but it was the fact that it was on Def Jam. Had that brand. You know, I bought it. And he was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? But that was the thing. This it is was bad, but, <laughs> you know, but no like, shots. But that was the thing was, was like, you know, if it was on Def Jam, you just took it for granted that okay quality control was there right. like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna roll with it right and that's where marvel is and i think the secret to marvel is they have a knowledge and a passion about their characters but at the same time they're open-minded enough to 
lend them to interpretation because what Joss Whedon did with the Avengers um, really set the tone for everything else. I mean, or, or, you know, or even even before then, what what, what Favreau did with um, with Iron Man, Iron Man, you know, and and what Robert Downey Jr.'s whole take and 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 all, and all that stuff. I mean, it really kind of set the tone on the on the film wise, and then television wise. I mean, you know, what's great about what Jeff Loeb in terms of um, the environment he created Marvel Television in terms of, and I think Jeff in particular is interesting from the standpoint that. He was a um, a television writer. He he wrote on Lost. He wrote on Heroes. He was also he he wrote screenplay wise. He wrote Commando. He wrote Teen Wolf, and then comic book wise. I mean, you know, he's done everything from like Spider Man Blue to um, a, a really great DC stuff yes. with, with Batman. Yes, Long Halloween, Dark Victory. But Tim Sale, he always exactly. Yeah. I mean, so I remember that first meeting. I, I I think I was more nervous for that meeting than almost any meeting I've ever had ever. Because I, you know, you kind of in the presence of of a comic book demigod. Right. But the thing that I found about Jeff that was so great was just how open minded he was. So he would basically say, "Well, okay, this might not be the way that we would do this, but other than that, if you kind of could present a compelling case as to why something should be, they let it go." And 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 that was really was really kind of the best thing for Luke Cage was that um, they really wanted something that could breathe, something something that could breathe new energy into the character. But always were very cognizant of okay, you're if you're leaning too far here, or Luke wouldn't do that. You know, I always just basically rather than being mad about that, said okay, let me think of something else that will kind of keep us in that same direction. Right. And then with Netflix, Netflix also has a very strong voice. But what's great about the combination of both great is, streak. is that streak. you have two companies that are so passionate right. about these characters that it forces you to always be on on point. And and then also just we were just so blessed with the actors that we had so that really for us, and this is just me kind of talking about this from a personal level, you always were trying to excel to my whole vision for this show was to be able to finally come up with something that that could, you know, keep up with Daredevil and Jessica Jones and and the ground that they laid to being like, look, comic book shows can basically be put next to anything else and be the equal. And not be like the kind of like commercial thing. Right. It's something that can really hold up. And then if you kind of go back to your initial question about why Marvel is on the streak, Marvel doesn't view their movies or or or, or, or their TV shows as being inferior to anything. If anything, they, they're trying to show that these brands can be profound and strong and true to themselves and basically stand equal with anything else that's out there. You know, I love life. Like, I love every day of my life. I love the greatest aspects of my life. I love the worst days of my life. But you guys have given me an additional reason for loving life. This is the best. F- if you've ever read comic books, and I'm, I'm sorry, DC fans, because you guys aren't really getting what we're getting. Like, <laughs> But as a Marvel fan, as a, as a lifelong Marvel fan, this is the best fucking time to be alive. Oh, no, no doubt. It's uh, I mean, for me... I think right now, because I'm in it, right. it's like it's just it's a it's a hustle, it's a chase, it's like it's work. All these interviews, the writing, you know, being involved, because um, as a showrunner, like you're you're basically head coach. It's like you're not coming up all of the offensive plans, but ultimately you have to make decisions. And let all. me interrupt you for a second. Yeah, what exactly does a showrunner do? Um, it's funny. I would kind of say a showrunner is both a general manager and a head coach. Okay. So what I mean by that is that, like, 
our writer's room, when I when I was assembling the writer's room, the way that I looked at it, because um, my, my college roommate, um, David Shaw, um, he was he, um, we both went to Stanford together. He's now the head coach at Stanford. And so <laughs> like so following David's career and also being obsessed with the NFL Network. So, you know, me between gangster movies and the NFL Network, that, that's kind of all I watch. But when you watch like behind the scenes, the way that a, that a coaching staff works is you have offense and defense. And so the way that I assembled, you know, our, our various writers, whether it's myself or Charles Murray or Christian Taylor or Jason Horwich or Akela Cooper, Aida Kroll, Nathan Lewis Jackson or Matt Owens, is dialogue is offense, structure is defense. And so with each of us, like some of us are really good with dialogue, some of us are really good with structure. And the arguments and, you know, kind of the very fun passion arguments that you would have just the same way that if you're watching a coaching room, like you're always you're basically competitive, but at the same time on the same team trying to basically make the perfect team. When you come together with these scripts, they both they had to work in terms of popping on the page, in terms of dialogue, but the structure of the storytelling always had to be on point. And so then once you get the scripts, then you give it to your quarterback. In our case, our quarterback is Mike Coulter. And so that's kind of the creative side. That's the head coaching side of, being, of basically whether you write the script or come up with the offense or not, you have to, you're have to. you going to be the one to call the play. Even if the, if the offensive coordinator is throwing in a play, you got to say, okay, we are going to go with this. We're not going to call an audible, you know, and, and that's executed. The general manager side of it is, you know, we have to make these things on a budget. It's also talking with all the different department heads about whether it's construction, whether it's, you know, um, the – Everything from sound design to production design to, you know, costumes, everything you have to sign off on. And so as a showrunner, you're basically confronted with all these all these different decisions. And so the only way to be effective at it is you have to trust the people that you hire. You have to trust the people that you hire to make the right choices. But ultimately, it's either it's, it's your fault. <laughs> so you have to be ready in terms of decisions to you're fully accountable. Yeah, to be accountable and, and, and to think about all these things. And so that's the pressure of it, but it's also the joy of it because when it all comes together, you know, it's something that, you know, you're so much a part of, but then at the same time, there's this weird part where you're detached from it and you just watch it like, man, it's incredible watching every, everybody, you know, working together. Because when you put it together, when it all kind of comes together and everybody buys into the vision, then it no longer belongs to you. It belongs to everybody that's a part of it. The team. And so that's my whole thing about this, where it's like I'm getting, you know, being the showrunner of the show, I'm getting a lot of celebration. But it isn't just me. It's really everybody. And and it's all, it's all of us. And so the thing is, it's like it, the show doesn't just belong to me. It really kind of belongs to the entire team. And that's not just, just in terms of just the physical production or even, you know, the writing, but it's also even in terms of the notes that we get because everyone is trying to basically make it the best that that it can be and then when you finally have the final sign off from everybody and then you see the finished product and the finished product is as good as as this as i think this is you know you you kind of take the satisfaction from that and so to me that's one of the most exciting parts of this whole thing it's just like man just being able to step back and watch this thing so for me right now we have the premiere tomorrow and i'm I'm kind of nervous about that because you never you know that's it's kind of giddy excitement but it's also like i i I might not, I might not, I might not even be able to watch it. Why? It's just because you know, you know, it is. It's just opening night jitter. It's like, yeah. every, I, I think as soon as it comes on, I'm gonna like leave my seat because my, my my wife's flying in. 
I'll probably get up and I'll probably walk out of the theater and just like let everybody have it because I've seen it so many times. I'm probably going to be too nervous to even sit and watch it. Right, because of other people's reactions? With that, and it's just, it's just weird. Right. It's just kind of, I don't know. It's, it's just one of these things. I mean, it's like, I don't, I don't know how to really describe it. So there's part of me that's going to be like, you know, not being able to enjoy it in that way. Because I, you're too close to it. I'm way too close you're to way it. Too- I think I'm not going to really be able to fully enjoy it till I'm at home. Right. And I'm in front of my 65-inch 4K TV that I bought specifically <laughs> for to this watch, to watch this joint. I'm, I'm gonna be home, I'll crank yeah. it up, and that's when I'm gonna be like be able to like to be able to like oh my god, like I, I can finally like sit take it all in, right? And take it all in, yeah. you know. And that to me is is gonna be really fun. And the other part, of course, I love because I I love getting into in like Twitter and Facebook arguments. <laughs> like like I love reading. People's reactions, and there's always one hater, and I, and I, I like direct messaging there's that hater all, and, and, all, yeah. and, and being like, "Like, well, what do you mean?" And then going back and forth, and so for me, one of the fun parts is like just getting to watch people's reactions to the various things that happen over the 13 episodes, and then being able to like debate in a fun way about all of it, and that's what's so great about this, you know, having a show online. And that reaction being online is that you have a interaction with your fans that's different than any other kind of interaction. Right, right. And I think that's going to be fun as well. Right. What's your personal re- relationship to, to, to the character Luke Cage? Because um, as, a, as, a, as a 70s baby, um, I remember the first time I saw the cover of uh, Luke Cage Power Man. I was like, oh, my God, there's a black character. Yeah, and so that was my initial attraction, and you know, it took place in Harlem and the whole nine. And even though it was white writers, it, it still spoke to me. Well, um, you know, representation is always important. Yes, I mean, if, I, I grew up in a family where if you're watching Family Feud and there was a black family on Family you Feud, you cheerful. Yes, you know what I'm saying. So it's kind of like when you see, I mean, my initial reaction was like, okay, this is cool. And I looked up to Luke Cage the same way that, like, anytime there was, like, a Muhammad Ali cover, mm-hmm. you know, I, I looked at that. Or when you see that kind of representation of, of black masculine strength, particularly as a young black boy like me that grew up without my father, you know, whether I realized it or not, that was important in, in seeing that. Um, as I began to read comics, I mean, because this reminds you, like, seeing a, 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 a Power Man here and there. As I began to read comics, um, I wouldn't necessarily see as much, you know, in terms of, like, being as moved by the storylines. But there was always a potential there with Luke Cage to tell a deeper story. And sometimes so some stories would go there, some stories wouldn't. I mean, what I remember from Heroes for Hire, going back to reading comics, is that there were a lot of one-off stories, right. but the potential was always there. Right. And in a, in a weird way, I think that this show is kind of a partial realization of, of, of some of those kinds of stories. And so what I'm hoping is that in this interpretation of Luke Cage, that rather than seeing the TV version as the denigration of the comics, I hope people read Luke Cage, watch the show, appreciate what we're trying to capture, and then it makes you know fans that come into the show watching the show make them want to read the comic, right. and people that have read the comic hopefully will appreciate what we've done with the show, right. and then showing that you can really do both. Favorite Luke Cage storyline in comic books? Well, you know, well, one favorite, of course, is when he goes all the way to <laughs> to um, 
to find um, Doctor Doom, mm. you know, for 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 um, stiffing them. Right. The whole where's the money, honey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, I I would love to I would love to, to to work a variation of that. You know, if we're luck, if we're lucky enough to get a season two. Right. Um, but I also I'm sure you guys are going to get a season two. Yeah, right? hey man. I, I mean, the, the demand for this show seems way higher than the demand for for for, for Daredevil. Well, yeah, I don't take any of it for granted, right. honestly, because after vinyl, man, it's like you you never know, right? You know, I'm That's just true. Re- I just really want people to to really just watch and just right. and, and enjoy the show. But um, I, you know, I really liked what Brian Michael Bendis recently like like in terms of you know um, not just Alias but also New Avengers, also um, incorporating you know, Luke into the Avengers yeah universe, which was huge. Well, I mean, that, with, that, with 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 the leadership role, yeah, I I just think you know he's natural for that, right? And you know, um, we'll have to see if it ever crosses over. But like, we have a you know, the character is so centered now in the Marvel universe. I think it's interesting. Like, also, really, I I loved what happened with Civil War. Yes, and I loved how he basically looked at what was happening as a civil rights issue of to a certain extent. Right. So when he decides to join Captain America and going against this, there's something very real about that. Probably, you know, I think my one of my favorite stories was in the Reggie Hudlin reinterpretation of Black Panther. Classic. Um, Classic. I think that's the best yeah. Black Panther storyline of all time. Yeah. That's when when he and, and, um, and T'Challa go on the road, like that was to me was it was almost like a um, a hip hop Marvel version of the Blues Brothers, right? Because <laughs> yes. it is kind of <laughs> on a mission. Like that was a really fun storyline. Right. Like I, I I love that one. I love I love having this debate on 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 social media. Black Panther, Luke Cage. But who would win? No, who's who? Who's your favorite out of out of the two? Like who do you prefer? It's that's that's hard. It was hard for me, and then someone voiced it in a, in a manner that made me choose Luke Cage. And the reasoning I heard is that, you know, Jack Kirby, 60s, we need a black superhero, Black Panther, you know, uh, Wakanda, blah, 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 blah. But Luke Cage spoke to my American experience. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the thing. It's like, it's the reason that that I'm, I'm having trouble with that is because if they fully realize Wakanda it would basically be like Zamunda with, you know, deep pockets and superpowers. Right. You know what I'm saying? It would be like, you know, it basically would be like the an, an, an Earth, Wind & Fire album cover come to life. It'd be like, you know, serious blackness with technology. Right. With the most, you know, precious. Oh, man, the parties would be out of this world. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? World. So, and, and the fact that, like, you know, just what that character could represent and the, the proper interpretation. Right. He's always been one of my favorites. Yeah. But then the thing is, is that like now having literally incorporated Luke Cage, you know, he's now a part of my psyche. Right. So the fanboy in me has a hard time answering that question. But I say unequivocally, I'd have to favor Luke Cage from a personal standpoint, because now I'm so I take the character you're, you're so personally attached, you're attached to and character. I'm attached yeah, to him. Yeah. But then I, 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 I got to be Team Luke on yeah. that one. You know, we're running out of time, man. I, yeah. I, 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 we didn't even get into, like, I wanted to jump into, like, your, your, your source history, like the source and the, and the whole nine. Um, but uh, Well, there's, there's always part two. There's I, can, always, I can always come there's, back. There's always part. But, you know, now you, you're you so hard to reach, man. <laughs> you're so hard to get, man. 
Um, by the way, my favorite Luke Cage storyline of all time is is the Heroes for Hire John Byrne. Yeah. Um, because it was just like it took him out of his comfort zone and it, 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 it partnered him up with Danny Rand, Iron Fist, and just John Byrne's pens, man. Um, I'm trying to figure out my, what my top five question is going to be for you. Okay. Is it going to be top five MCs or is it going to be top five comic book characters of all time? Hmm. Let's go. Let's go. Top with, five MCs and their comic book counterpart. Honestly, that, 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 that's that's way that's you, 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 you don't read comics, man. You don't read. So we got to fall back on that, man. All Top right. five comic book characters of all time. Okay. I'm, actually, I'm going to do both. Sorry. All right. Okay. Let me see. So comic book characters for me, I mean, um, and they're almost all X-Men related, honestly. Yeah. Wolverine, number one. Um, Aurora, Storm, number two. Mm, that's a good one. Um, Sebastian Shaw, I've always thought was mm, a great. That's a good one. Was a great villain. Right. Um, as three. Um, okay, the White Queen is interesting. And the reason I, I picked the White Queen over Jean Grey is I remember there was, this, there was this great moment when she was dealing with Bobby Drake. And she basically took over Iceman. And he was doing things he had never done before. And she and he, and, and he was like, I never knew my powers could do that. And he was like, and she was like, basically, you're lazy. You never tried. Yeah, you're basic. You know? <laughs> and so, and I, just, I just remember that. Like, that's just deep, you right. know? So something sinister about that. And then five? Huh. I think Cannonball. Cannonball? Yeah, from from from, from, from Alpha Flight. No, from from New Mutants. From New Mutants. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Sam Guthrie. Like right. I, I always thought that that he, he's a kid that would have the flames under his feet or some shit. Yeah, like he because would fly, right? he, he basically you know he he basically was imperfect because it took him a long time to finally learn like how to how, maneuver. How to maneuver. Right. But then once he did, it was just like it was. I just remember being gratified by following his progress. You know. Um, so you're you're really about this reluctant hero thing. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, because now from as from a storytelling standpoint, yeah, you know. Um, although I, I also like Sunspot too. I mean, I, it, be, it basically would would be a tie between right between um, Cannonball and Sunspot because okay. I, I thought that Sunspot's whole thing about like you know his dad being being you know in the Hellfire Club, but at the same time he wants to be a hero. It's just kind of you know Roberto da Costa is kind right. of an interesting character. Um, I don't know. Top five MCs. Oh, let's see. Um, I gotta go. Rakim, mm. Chris, Kane, LL, um, Cube. That's a good list. You know, um, that's and, a very good list. And 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 all people are gonna be kind of surprised. Well, how come you didn't put Big? Right. Or how come you didn't put Tupac? Because I remember. Because I'm old enough to remember when they were out. And if you asked them for their top five, they wouldn't have put themselves on that top five. Right. Um, That's true. And the thing is, is that, like, I think in retrospect, now that they're legendary, of course they would be top five. But because, you know, I, I'm i old enough to remember the evolution of Tupac as an MC, And I remember talking to Chris about how much he loved Rakim, you know, and, and as well as Kane. Right. Like, I'm kind of going with the originator, you know. And Kane has always been a favorite for me. Kane. You know, because Kane is a repl- Kane is in my top five. Well, because Chris was, is in my top five. Well, I mean, Chris, you got to give you always have to give a top five because he's the only MC right now that could battle anybody and probably win. Still, still, because that's just what, what yeah. where his head is at. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think with Kane, I mean, he he came up with my with two of my favorite metaphors of all time. You know, so full of axiom, and he should be a verb. Yep. 
and kind of skeptical like a girl on a contraceptive. I mean, both of those, you yeah, yeah. think about that, it's just <laughs> genius. And then, of course, Kane begat Jay-Z, of course. Yeah. yeah, and then Rakim is just like, when you when you think about... Rakim took a flat whirl and made it round. Yeah. Records that he made in 86. Yeah. 86. 86. You could play right now and just the elocution is just incredible. But then, I mean, but it's the, the problem with these top five lists is that it's like categorization. I mean... By period, by era. By that, I mean, because perfect example, someone like Slick Rick. Slick Rick is as a storyteller. I, I, I see like Slick Rick and I see Notorious B.I.G.s. They're, they're, they're novelists. You know what I'm saying? It's like when, when you look at, the, or, or even Jay-Z to a certain extent, when you look at their approach to storytelling, they're huge influences on me as, as a writer because it's like, how are you ever going to write a narrative that's as clean as niggas bleed? Right. Or as clean as got a, I got a story to tell? Right. Or as clean as... You must some, love me. You know, somebody's got to die. Right, right. Or, or, or on, on Jay's level, like, you know, meet the parents. Yes. Somebody's got, you know, it's like, you know, um, there's so many different ways you can go with that. You know, I always say that, like, when you look at what Richard Price did with Clockers mm-hmm. in that novel, that's really the equivalent to that is, is what Biggie did with Ready to Die, what, you know, Jay-Z did with Reasonable Doubt, which is instead of taking five or 600 pages to do that, they did it with a couple of rhymes right. that gave that same perspective of the stress of the street stress, level the urgency of, of the street level drug dealer right. and what that does to your psyche and what that does to your insides. Back in the day, our parents used to take care of us. Look at them now. They even fucking scared of us. Yeah. One line defines an entire generation. Yep. Either you slang crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot. Yep. I mean, just think about the visuals of that. You know, you man, big was amazing, man. Still. Yeah. Still. Listen, man, good luck. With Luke Cage, I don't think you need much because I think you know, like I said, the anticipation is there. I can always use luck. I can always use prayers. I'll yes, take sir. Them both. And I'll send you my praise. Do me a favor, please. This is personal. If there is a season two, can I be an extra, please, my dude? I want to be an extra. I'll do you one better than that. Yeah. Um, do you want to be rescued by Luke, or do you want to get punched out by? Rescue. <laughs> we'll talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about <laughs> what. Let's let's talk about that, man. But thank you, man. Thank you for coming 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 by the show. This has been a long time overdue, but I think this is the right time. You know what I'm saying? And, and, no, thank and, you. And congratulations, man. No, thank you. I think thank we're you. all like like coming from the hip hop community, coming from you know the Source magazine and everything you've done there, coming from Notorious and seeing how you've really just I don't know your story about how you transformed yourself into Hollywood, but just seeing you do it. And it's such a prominent position, man. I think we're all proud of you, man. So thank no, you, thank you, thank you. And of course, I'm you know. Just thinking about my evolution from a hip hop journalist to now, like of course I got to give a shout out to, you know, like Reggie Dennis yes. and James Bernard, and Rob Marriott, you know, and Rob Kenner, you know, because all of them were very, you know, inspirational to me and just helped me evolve as a writer, you know. And uh, without them, there wouldn't be this. Yeah, I, honestly, yeah. Of course, I got to shout me me about this as well. Yes, because you know, um, there's, I mean, so many of us. I mean. We, it was like just as writers we, we all sharpened each other and um so many of the lessons i learned as an interviewer and just going through that to this day stick with me always internets luke cage this friday september 30th on netflix don't miss it yeah well, if you if you miss it unsubscribe don't <laughs> fuck with us yeah all right so on the east coast you know 3 a.m um on the west coast midnight if you're so we're getting it we're getting it later 
Yeah, so so you, you so have three a.m. Yeah, three a.m. or or or, or uh, midnight on, on on the West Coast. Well, there you go. All thirteen episodes. All thirteen episodes. Yeah. Hopefully, I'll, I'll have to zoom through these seven. But you know, I tend to watch things slow. Like it took me at least four months to watch a Daredevil. Yeah. Each 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 series. But once again, man, congratulations. And, Thank and, you. And the best of luck. Yes. King, did, did, was this was did you feel excluded in this conversation since it was very fan bro heavy? Nah, I okay. mean, I'm, 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 I think I appreciate the visual side of the, the comic book era. Yo, shout out to Dante movies. Ross. Shout out to Gary Harris as well. There you go. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, like Civil War, we was on a plane. I thought that was amazing. Crazy. You know, Captain America, obviously. Yeah. Jeff T- Chang. T- team Captain or, or Team Iron Man? Oh, I was all Team Cap until um, you got yeah. to that moment where um, – where Iron Man was like, "You kill my mom," and yeah. then and then I kind of I kind of understood where he was coming from. Yeah, yeah. You know that that was what was so great about that movie was that like you go in Team Cap, and then there's this emotional moment where you understand where Iron Man's coming from. I, I mean, I always understood, like even in the comic book, I understood. Yeah. Tony's position, but I was always Team Cap. Team oh. Cap, and, I, they, and they didn't have to do Black Goliath like that. Like he was a Christmas addict of. The Civil War, Facts. man. They didn't have to do them like that in, yeah, in, in, yeah, in the comic yeah, book, yeah. man. That's true. <laughs> Listen, That's true. man, thanks again. Internets, man, you know what it is, man. Dream those dreams. Man up, woman up, and live those dreams because a life without dreams is black and white and the universe flows in Technicolor and surround sound. Luke Cage, September 30th, Netflix. We out. Hashtag Luke Cage. Hashtag Sweet Christmas. Sweet, hashtag Sweet Christmas. Numenati! This episode of the Combat Jack Show was produced by Jonathan Menna, executive produced by A. King, and Chris Morrow, engineered by Samir Karan and recorded in the Engine Room Audio Studio in downtown Manhattan. This is an official Loudspeakers Network's production. Hey, yo, Combat, this Ant from Charlotte, bro. Just want to give you niggas a call, man. I've been bullshitting, I'm calling. Until I thought about some shit my cousin said, which is, if you got a compliment for a nigga, you don't get a good compliment to the nigga. You essentially don't want that nigga to flourish, and I don't want to be a hating-ass nigga, so I'm calling to compliment you on a job well done with the show. Thank you, King, Morrow, Mena, all y'all niggas, man. Um, I appreciate the women that you have on the show, uh, helping me empower my daughter. Appreciate that shit. And just also want to tell you, man, what the fuck, man, hold up.